Welcome to episode 41 of season 1 of Nature Therapy Online. Now I'm outside in my garden and the sun is setting. It's a beautiful spring evening and um, I want to um, have a quick word before I introduce an incredible interview I've done with the author Daniel Allison the author and storyteller, Daniel Allison, which is coming up shortly. I just wanted to quickly let you know that this is the penultimate episode of season one of the podcast. So as you know, um, I will sometimes refer to this podcast uh, as, as season one as we've been going through the episodes over the last 10 months. Um, I don't always, often I will just say the episode number, but occasionally I will pop in and remind you that it's actually season one. And, and the reason that I've done that is because I've had a sense that um, I will need to take a break at some point um, and uh, have a little think about moving forward, give myself a rest from, from the podcast. And that time seems to be now. Um, so I'm going to talk in the final episode of season one next week all about um, moving forward and how the podcast will change and um, how I will spend the time during the break um, which will be for a couple of months until the end of June 2021 or if you're listening um, far into the future then you know and you're listening back then probably you will just be waiting I don't know 30 seconds or so after the episode finishes and you'll go straight to season two. You, you know, most people listen to podcasts retros retrospectively. Um, so, um, so yeah, wanted to let you know that, folks, before I go ahead with the rest of this episode. Now, this episode um, coming up now is um, all about my interview with Daniel Allison. So without further ado, I will hand over to the interview. Oh, hi there, folks, and welcome to another episode of Nature Therapy Online. So I've got a really special guest here with me today, and I'm really excited to have Daniel Allison here with me. So if you haven't heard of Daniel Allison yet or come across his work, he's a really well-respected storyteller. He's a storyteller's coach. He's the author of three amazing books called Scottish Myths and Legends, The Shattering Sea and Finn and the Fianna. And Daniel also runs The Roundhouse, which is the world's first membership site for oral storytellers. Um, I'm a member myself and Daniel has also been coaching me in storytelling skills over the last year, which is how I've come across Daniel. And his work is just amazing. And uh, there's a deep respect for nature that runs throughout pretty much everything that he does. So I wanted to um, pick Daniel's brains and ask him questions about his relationship in his writing and his storytelling with, with nature. So, um, so hi, Daniel, and thank you for being here. Hi, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
You're welcome. I'm uh, really delighted that you're here. So, um, so for those who maybe haven't come across your work already, Daniel, could you tell us a little bit about your storytelling and your fiction and perhaps where your focus is at the moment with your work? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, as you said, I'm uh, primarily a writer and a storyteller and now a writing coach and storytelling coach. And for the last couple of years, uh, the last few years, actually, because I went away and lived in Thailand um, for the better part of a year before uh, lockdown happened, I've been that focused on storytelling performance and been focused more on teaching uh, and on my writing. Performance wise, uh, I focus on uh, Celtic myths and legends, stories from British Isles and also stories from animistic cultures such as those of Siberia, uh, the Australian Aboriginals, a sand bushmen of South Africa and others. And then in terms of my writing, I've got uh, two main threads. Uh, one is my series Celtic Myths and Legends Retold, which uh, the first book in that series was Scottish Myths and Legends, which came out about this time last year. The second book in the series was Finn and the Fianna, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. And well, I'm probably gonna be at this for quite a number of years. Um, what I'm doing with that series is trying to popularize uh, the Celtic stories, the stories uh, from the British Isles, Welsh stories, uh, Scottish stories, Irish stories, by telling them in a, in a new voice in a way that is easy to read so that anyone can pick up pick up a book and enjoy it and um, which feels fresh and but which also captures uh, that the oral feel of the stories and also as much as possible of the the power and the depth and the beauty uh, of those stories because uh, i would love to get to a, a stage where just as your average semi-literate person nowadays um, knows, uh, can tell you who a few Greek gods are, can tell it will recognize the name of Zeus and Hera and Hercules, and will also know about the Norse gods, about Thor and Odin and Loki. I'd love for them to also know the Celtic stories and to know who Cuchulain is and to know who Finn McCool is, to know who the Kaliak is. Uh, so that's uh, one of my one of my projects. I'm currently working on a retelling of the Mabinogi on the Welsh collection of legends. And then my other project is a series called the Orkney Cycle, which I know you're familiar with. Yeah. Which is a uh, kind of redreaming or uh, dreaming into the gaps in Celtic mythology, uh, because uh, as you'll know. Uh, Celtic mythology, um, Scottish lore and legend is very sparse. We've only got like a few ragged threads here and there of what was once a great tapestry. So there are these huge gaps, you know, we don't know the names of most of our gods. We've lost probably, you know, the vast majority of our stories. And this is a source of a lot of sadness for many of us to, to this day. But um, it does offer an invitation uh, for those of us who are interested in creative mythology. You could call it in dreaming into the gaps, writing into the gaps, exploring what else might have been there. So what I'm doing there is writing a series um, set in prehistoric Scotland, but also stretching out across Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Faroe, Iceland, and mixing in uh, existing prehistory, uh, what we know from archaeological sites and ar the archaeological record, um, along with existing folklore and legend 
elements and, and blending those together with elements of contemporary fantasy writing to create a kind of historical or prehistoric uh, fantasy epic, which mm -hmm. is um, in turn part of a kind of larger series of series, uh, which I'll probably be writing for decades to come, um, which I call The Tears of the Stars, uh, my first currently unpublished novel was part of that. That was a fantasy set in post-apocalyptic Scotland. And so I want to write lots of series set uh, in our past, in our future, in the mythic past, all as a kind of, yeah, a kind of creative mythology, a way for me to um, look more deeply into and experience more deeply our myths and legends and lore. Mm, that's amazing, Daniel. And, you know, so much of what you were saying there just, you know, got my... Uh, got my ecotherapy juices flowing for want of a, a, a much better expression. But when you were talking about like Finn McCool and the Kaliak and the Mabinogion and, and, you know, how you're trying to repopularize all of this, um, it just struck me like how important it is. And also, also like those deep links with nature. I mean, the, for people who, who aren't aware of any of these, you know, just really powerful myths, um, you know, nature is, is all over them. The creation myths, you know, like the like the Mabinogion, for example. I, mean, I only started reading that on the basis of your recommendation. And something that struck me is, I mean, all of this, like, you know, just this fascinating lore, everything is just outside with the hills and animals and, you know, there's just so much beauty and strangeness. And yet some of the materials that I come across seem to be really um, quite hard to read, you know, like because some of the texts are quite, well, the Mabinogion is, is, is one of the oldest scripts in the, in the British Isles now, or is it were they the oldest, perhaps like, you know, fictional script, is, is that right? Oldest prose literature in Britain. That's, that, that's oh. the one. And, and yeah, and I think, you know, for, for all like the, 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 the beauty of having that captured, you know, in, in ancient form, which is so fascinating in itself to read, it can, you know, the way that I think we read and we've been, you know, brought up in our modern culture to read, I think is, is, is very different. And I think when I read your Scottish Myths and Legends book, um, I think that's what I really appreciated how reading how the way that you had retold the Scottish myths um, compared to a lot of the older books that I've read just felt a lot more genuinely engaging. And I think as such, it, you know, going back to the, the ecotherapy side of things, I mean, again, like those, the, the Scottish myths and legends, I mean, I think all of those feel like nature myths to me. And I think when these stories are told in an engaging way, it opens our mind to nature in a different way and it helps us to look at the landscape in a different way. So it feels like what you're doing is is, is nature work in its own way. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts around that, you know, about the links between the work that you're doing, you know, with myths and legends, folk tales and, and, and old tales and nature connection. What, what are your thoughts about that realm in general? Yeah, well, I think telling uh, the old stories, uh, rewriting the old stories, for me is it's it's kind of like kind of like nature therapy for me, um, which perhaps then gets passed on uh, to the listener or the reader. Uh, the stories which uh, I tend to tell um, to go back to uh, the. The, how I mentioned, I like to tell stories from animistic cultures, hunter-gatherer peoples like the Siberian tribes or the Bushmen. Mm -hmm. These are people 
um, like the Bushmen are believed to have perhaps the oldest continuous culture in the entire world. Uh, so these are people whose entire worldview is an animistic one. It's a worldview in which everything is alive, every tree is alive, every rock is alive, every river is alive and has its own spirit and our own way of speaking. And some people are able to learn to speak those languages or listen to those languages. And uh, life is dictated by nature. Like the men believed or believe that if, um, if they came across an eland, an antelope, out there in the booth and they're hunting that be chosen uh, to come to them and to allow itself hunted. So that a gift from nature, from the spirits, from, from the Elan people. And if they weren't given that gift, if they decided not to present themselves, then the people would go hungry. So nature was master. And so there's this view uh, in these animistic societies of the fundamental aliveness of all things in nature and of the fundamental connection between all things, that everything can become something else. Uh, that's say in the Siberian story of Nyan Ganis, a man is out hunting and he falls through a river and he comes to another land and he sees a woman riding by in a reindeer. So he goes over to her and touches her and she starts screaming. And he realizes eventually that he has a sickness spirit in this world and he has made her sick. He has become a sickness spirit. Uh, a girl is running away from the moon man who's chasing her. So she becomes the lamp uh, to disguise herself. Everything is fundamentally connected to everything else. And so it can become something else. A person can become an animal. An animal can become a person. And it seems, it seems, we don't know, but it seems that every prehistoric people in the world had this worldview. It was universal, you know, despite there are always so many differences between people, this was a universal. And there are certain storytelling traditions that um, have really kept this in a really, in a, in a pretty pure, unaltered state. As, as time has gone on, stories, you know, they change, um, they adapt uh, to the time they find themselves in. So European stories have this, but it sometimes it's like you have to kind of dig down for it a bit. Mm. But uh, the Bushmen stories, it's right there. The Siberian stories, it's right there. The Christian missionaries, you know, didn't tend to get so far into Siberia because it's not, not a hugely hospitable place. Um, so the stories weren't um, altered so much. And then uh, the, the Scottish ones, like you say, they really have it too. And our stories, you know, have been, a lot of them have been changed a lot over the years, but particularly if you look at the Hebridean stories, which are from, you know, the Hebrides, the very edge of the Eurasian continents, the very edge of the world, in a sense, they have this same, they have the same thing to them, don't they? In which everything can become something else and the most wondrous of things are, are possible because the other world um, is ever present. So um, this, is, this is a very long answer. I It's a very really good answer, carry on, please. Um, I think that worldview is one that I think it's one that we fundamentally have in us. I think I, I think I had it intuitively as a child, but lost it um, being a you know, Western person growing up in a uh, Western society with a Western worldview. I began to regard myself as an atheist growing up. But then when I got older, um, when I was at university, I studied with a teacher called Brian Bates, an amazing author um, who wrote books uh, called The Way of Weird, The Wisdom of Weird, um, The Real Middle Earth, um, which is about shamanic consciousness uh, in Britain. And so I learned from him about uh, the shamanic 
worldview, about animistic worldviews. And this really hit home. And from there, I explored other um, spiritual systems, explored other places. And I think uh, this, this animistic worldview, I sort of rediscovered it and it felt like home. Uh, in particular, I came across some books, some children's books called The, the Chronicles of Ancient Darkness by Michelle Paver, a wonderful, wonderful series um, set in the Pale Upper Paleolithic in Northern Scandinavia in which um, these tribal people live, you know, completely, completely in harmony with nature and always talking to the forest, to the rivers, to the animals, the spirits, and everything in their life is controlled by the spirits in their worldview. And this just felt so right to me that I think I found that through this, when after discovering story and telling these stories, uh, listening to these stories, reading these stories was a way of reaffirming this worldview uh, to myself and reaffirming this worldview and the, the power of nature and the, the ultimate source of, of beauty, of life, of love and everything in life uh, is from nature. So it's a, yeah, it's a kind of therapeutic thing for me to use these stories as a way of en engaging with, with nature and then hopefully to pass that on to, to people who listen. That's great, Daniel. And that's so much of what you said there just, you know, I mean, I could, to be honest, respond to each point in about, you know, an hour for each point. So I'll try to keep myself as brief as possible. But something that just really struck me when you were talking, and I, and I had this same feeling when I, I interviewed um, a, a, a guy called Alistair recently, who's a, an ecotherapist, and he was also talking about, he's Australian, and he was talking about ancient uh, Aboriginal culture in Australia. And Alistair Taylor, his name is, uh, sorry, Alistair. I know him. Oh, you know him, do you? Right. And, well, I mean, you'll, a lot of what he was saying, you know, like really rang, um, you know, true with what you were saying. And, and my response then was as it is now, which is that it's so fascinating how or, or, or sad, perhaps in a lot of ways, how ancient ways of being, you know, like people acknowledging that life is is dictated by nature and nature, you know, nature is everything. We're just we're a small part of it. And nature is master and you know even the, the, the even on a very practical level you know this the, the way these stories talk about you know how people can become animals and animals can become people i mean even in terms of you know we don't come from nowhere and go nowhere even on a very physical level you know our, our bodies are recycled even if we're burnt and turned into dust the dust can be sprinkled into the sea but that goes somewhere it becomes part of the whole again and, and for me the these stories, this acknowledgement from ancient cultures is, is, is pointing to just the reality of things and the reality of the ecosystem. And it just seems to me that we've, you know, come so far in so-called modern living and that we're starting to just realize now, you know, like, oh, hang on, we need to wake up. And actually what we're waking up to is the fact that, you know, ancient cultures were right you know and the, the, you know where, where we we were as you know in, in western europe you know thousands of years ago in many ways as it was a lot wiser than than where we are now um, but but as i say you know i could talk about it for a long time so I, I so i won't but you know what something i wanted to ask you um because you 
are clearly so passionate about all of this and and you know it, it, it strikes me someone who's so connected with nature in such a way that you know you you write about it and you're so in in into it deeply in in your work um you must have had a lot of powerful moments and you know i know that you've also lived um in all kinds of places as you were mentioning before like in, in, and probably seen all kinds of incredible landscapes so I wondered if you could perhaps share a powerful personal moment that you've had in you know in nature whether that's you know in in Europe you know here in Scotland anywhere in the world you know just something that something that stays with you that you could share with the listeners yeah certainly well, the moment that comes to mind, or I might go with two, uh, a moment that comes to mind is from when I was in Kenya. Uh, I dreamed of going to Kenya all my childhood. Uh, the thing I wanted was to go to the Masamara and see the lions and the giraffes and all the rest of it. Mm. Uh, that was what I wanted more than anything. So after I left school, I went on one of these programs where you go and volunteer to teach in a school. And uh, after I'd done that for a few months, I went with a group of people uh, on a, to a little trip to the Masai Mara for three days. And there was a moment um, we were out in a little truck, you go in open top truck, and we drove up to where some lionesses were lying around uh, in the sunshine. And I was looking down at this lioness who was you know, pretty, pretty close to the truck. And she was just lying there having a nice afternoon, relax, as my cat is doing uh, on the desk right now. Mm -hmm. And he just looked, you know, opened her eyes for a moment and looked into my eyes. And I had uh, knowledge in that moment of what it is to be prey. I was not a person to her. I wasn't Daniel. I wasn't someone whose feelings were to be considered. I was a piece of meat. Mm -hmm. And if I wasn't, you know, up in that truck thing, if she was hungry and I was uh, on the grass, she would you know, eat me without a you know, moment's thought. And there was something really, really powerful in that for me. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a whole aspect of nature, the, the predatory side of nature, the side of nature that's unforgiving that doesn't care about you at all because there is you know that is a huge part of nature like um, i heard someone put it beautifully the other day that it was david abrams and um, wonderful writer wrote the spell of the sensuous and he was saying you know nature is very beautiful but she's not pretty she's not pretty and that i think that that made me think of this moment too you know there's something beautiful but not pretty in the in the look that lioness had in her eyes so that's always stayed with me and I love that, you know, because so often I think when we uh, try to recall powerful moments in nature, um, very often it's the it's the beautiful moments that, that spring to mind for a lot of people. I know they do from from myself, and there's something, you know, just very humbling about that. And it sounds like it, you know, got you thinking of, not even thinking consciously, but just this very physical sense of being a part again a part of the whole something quite scary you know all of a sudden as you say you're not the you know you're you're not this uh, this self that you that you think you are in that moment you're a part of the whole and your food you know and we are we are food to a lot of creatures and i think the 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 power of that for me is is uh, i don't know if that's you know the same for you but the british isles are so 
tame. I mean, we've killed off all the predators here, you know, and, and we don't come across those big predators in, you know, or any big predators in the in the UK anymore. There's very few things here that could that could kill us. And if they did, it would probably be by accident or, they were, or it would be a Rottweiler dog. So, you know, th- th- thanks for sharing that. It's just um, super powerful. And I think a really important reminder to, you know, for us in, in these very tamed, uh, you know, aisles we live on that nature is more than just, you know, the pretty flowers blooming. It, it, does, it, it it's, it's beauty is sometimes in its, uh, you know, in, it, in its fierceness. So, so cheers for that, Daniel. That's uh, something that will stay with my mind for the rest of the day. I think those eyes and um, something that, that I was, um, wondering about you know and, and you know you can you can say no to this if you want to um it does yeah I was wondering if the you had any um inspiring nature-based stories in your mind or, or one in particular that you just really love and you think that listeners could get a lot out of engaging with and and, and meeting you know for the first time if they haven't already and and if there is any you know nature-based story that springs to your mind that you'd like to share if if you could share it with us not you know if whether just a snippet of a telling or even if you could tell us about it I mean is there anything that springs to mind when I say that Daniel? Yeah, yeah, um, there is a story that springs to mind is uh, the most beautiful song in the forest, uh, which mm-hmm. is a pygmy story. Well, mm-hmm. now you've got me thinking about lionesses and I'm thinking about the hunter's tears, uh, uh, which is a very powerful story. Um, so, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Would you rather hear the most beautiful song in the forest or the hunter's tears? I think the most beautiful song in the forest, despite the fact I've just talked about all that fierceness, I've just gone back to my pure Britishness. I'm like, so tell me the beautiful one. How about that? Can we have that one? <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a pretty short story. It's one that Joseph Campbell, uh, the great mythologist, uh, author of Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, used to tell. So I heard it, him telling it on an audio book. Uh, it's a pygmy story uh, from uh, the Congo. And it goes that, Within the Congo, somewhere deep within that vast forest, uh, there was once a village. And this village, they had, there was houses here and there and there. And in one particular house, one particular little hut, there lived a family. And there was a mother and the father and three sons. And two of the sons were good, strong, hardworking lads. And the father was proud of them because they always wanted to hunt. They wanted to be like their father, their father. They wanted to be like the older boys and do the things the older boys did. But the youngest son, he was different. He didn't like to work. He didn't like to hunt. He just liked to wander in the forest and get lost in staring into a waterfall, staring at the flower, getting absorbed in its colors, staring up and watching the leaves as they rustled in the gentle wind. And the rest of the family didn't really have any time for this, particularly not the father. One day, the youngest son was off walking through the forest when he heard a song, a bird song. And it was the most beautiful song he had ever heard. It was sweeter than honey. It was 
more nourishing than water, than food. It was more than everything he had ever heard. It was more than everything he'd ever dreamed. It was like everything he'd looked for in the village, everything he'd looked for in the forest, everything that he could look for in life. It was in that song. And so off he went towards it. And he pictured a beautiful bird of paradise, feathers of every color. And he came closer and closer. And there it was. And it was a tiny little brown bird, the most plain, ordinary bird you could imagine. That was it. And it finished its song and he looked up at it and he spoke to it. And he said, your song is so beautiful. I would love it if you could come and sing for my family. Would you please come home with me? And because he spoke from his heart, the bird flew down and landed on his shoulder. So home they went and they got to the village. It was evening, the cooking fires had been lit, the sun was setting and he went into his hut and his brothers and his mother and father were there. And his father was in a good mood because the hunt had gone well that day. And he came in with the birds and he said, everyone, everyone, listen to this. And they're, what, what is it? And they saw the little bird and the bird opened its mouth and it began to sing. When it sang that beautiful song and everyone was completely entranced. And then it finished. And, and the brothers just stared at the bird and the mother just, stared at the bird and she put her hand in her heart obviously moved and the father <laughs> wow a silly little thing what a silly little bird what kind of child are you what kind of young man are you bringing home a little bird when you should be learning to hunt and the bird flew away the boy was sad of course so the next day he went out looking for it and he searched the forest until he heard it singing and he found it. And again, when it finished its song, he spoke to it and he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry my father spoke that way. He doesn't, he doesn't understand, but I think it would be good for him to listen to you. I think he just needs to hear a bit more of your song. Would you please come back and sing for us again? And because he spoke from his heart, the bird flew down, landed on his shoulder. So they returned to the village. Cook fires had been lit, the sun was setting, smoke rising from the huts. And in they went to the hut. And the boy's father was not in a good mood today. The hunt had gone badly, there wasn't much meat. And he saw the bird, and before the bird could sing, he said, You, you and that bird, get that stupid little bird out of here. And the bird flew away. The next day, the boy thought about whether or not he should search for the bird again. It was scary that moment, the previous night with his father. But he was so sure that his father, that everyone in the village, that he himself needed that bird and its song, that he went out looking for it again. He searched the forest, he went there and here and here and there till it heard its song in the distance and he found it, spoke to it and asked it again, please, can we try just one more time? 
could you come back with me and sing for my family? And because he spoke from his heart, the bird flew down onto his shoulder. They made their way back to the village. Cook fires had been lit. Sun was setting and there was a strange feeling about the village. There was no sound of laughter coming from any of the huts. And into the hut they went. There was the mother, head down, cooking. Brothers, heads down. And there was the boy's father with a fierce look in his eyes. The hunt had not gone well that day either. And in fact, it had not gone well that day because he had made a mistake. He had made a noise and he had scared their prey off. And so all the men were angry at him. Everyone in the village was ashamed of him. People were going to go hungry that night because of him. His mood was foul. And when he saw his youngest son enter with that bird, he didn't shout. He just reached over, snatched the bird from the boy's shoulder and threw it against the wall. He threw it against the wall and hit the wall. Down it fell to the ground and it was still. It was dead. And the boy fell to his knees, held the little bird up, and he was crying, he was crying, saying, no, 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 my bird. And then his father, his father began to shake, and his breath wouldn't come, and his family crowded around around him. He fell to the ground, and he arrives there, and then he fell still, his eyes open, his mouth wide. He was dead. And the people in that village grieved greatly for the man who died for his family who would be without a husband, a father. And they spoke of what had happened. And they argued over what had happened. And some people, some people said that The man had died because he needed that song. He needed that song more than anyone else. And because that song wasn't just in the bird, the song was in him. The song was his own. And that's the story of the most beautiful song in the forest. Oh, thank you so much. Daniel, that was just really beautiful, such a beautiful teller. And I feel like um, I feel like I want to just go and sit and ponder on that for a really long time, but I'm not going to um, I'm not going to respond with words. I'm sure that the listeners feel the same way that I do. So I, I just want to thank you for sharing that, that just beautiful story. And um, I guess, you know, moving on. I was wondering um, now. People have have heard, you know, you telling in that really inimitable and just beautiful way that you that you do tell. If if you could share where listeners can find you online and and you know find out more about your hundred projects that it seems you're 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 into at the moment. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. It's been a really long time since I've told it, I think. So it's just slightly rusty, but so, yeah, such a beautiful one. It's one of, uh, yeah, I'll, ne I'll never forget and never stop telling, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, where people can find me. Uh, well, there is my podcast, probably is a good starting off place. So that is House of Legends. I release two episodes every month, one with a story from me, uh, one with a story from a guest teller, and I get the most wonderful storytellers in the whole world. Uh, so I would highly recommend checking that out. Uh, I also have my books. So there's um, Scottish Myths and Legends, there's Finn and the Fianna, and there is... Uh, the Shattering Sea, the first part of the Orkney cycle, which I talked about. And, and there's also Silverborn. Silverborn is a short uh, ebook, short collection of stories um, in which characters from the Shattering Sea are gathered around the fire in ancient Orkney telling stories. And it's a kind of creative blending of uh, stories which I know and tell from the north of Scotland uh, mixed with created stories which tie into the whole uh, Orkney cycle and mythos and that's free uh, for everyone who joins my mailing list and um, so people can just go to my website houseoflegends.me and uh, you can order your copy of Silverborn and you'll get it sent to you as an ebook to read on your uh, iPad or your phone or Kindle or whatever you have. Um, also if people are interested in storytelling themselves, uh, I have the Roundhouse, uh, which is a membership site for storytellers. So it's a membership site, stroke online school. You get a couple of new study modules every month when you sign up. You have a community to join. We have regular webinars with guest teachers. We have story shares. It's everything you could possibly need to develop as an oral storyteller besides actually uh, doing practice. And there's lots of, to help you make sure you do that as well. And then also I offer coaching in groups. There's going to be a new year one group uh, starting soon. I also do one-to-one -one coaching uh, for anyone anywhere in the world because it's, uh, it's all online. And then I also offer uh, book coaching for anyone who's writing a book right from the start. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> right from coming up with your idea to uh, publishing, self-publishing, if, if that's what you're going to do. Uh, so those are my various offerings. I've probably forgotten one or two because I try and do a bit too much, but those are the main ones, I think. Amazing, Daniel. And just to say um, to the listeners, I will post links to all of Daniel's work and his main website um, on the main blog on naturetherapyonline.net. Um, and yeah, and I, and, and, I, and I told them that you're doing a hundred amazing things and, and you really are. And I'm sure there are more as well that you've forgotten. But, um, but I just want to say, Daniel, thank you so much for giving me your time because um, I can vouch for for the listeners of Daniel is an extremely busy human being and um, and you've just moved to the countries to beautiful countryside as well so he's, he's moving house on top of everything else so I'm uh, yeah really appreciating the fact that you've given me your time and and to talk about your work and again just for sharing that gorgeous story at the end which I feel like I'm gonna have to learn and, and, and tell myself at some point although I'm not gonna ever tell it as good as that so I don't know <laughs> so I don't know if I should try but um but thanks so much again Daniel and um, yeah is, is there anything else you want to say just before we round up uh, just to say uh, thank you for having me on the podcast I really enjoyed listening to it. you mentioned Alistair Taylor earlier I really enjoyed listening to that interview with uh, you and Alistair it was a really really enjoyable conversation and um, it's it's uh, been a pleasure working with you I've really enjoyed uh, seeing you develop as a storyteller and seeing all the energy and um, all the gifts which you 
bring to the world and to your work to so, so all the best for the future oh shocked thank you so much and uh, and i didn't even pay him to say that folks would you believe so thank you thanks a lot daniel and you take care and have a, a, a lovely day whatever you're doing and just keep on with the fantastic work thank you bye bye thank you bye Visit me online at naturetherapyonline.net.